You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I have a podcast recommendation for you. It's called Partners. It just wrapped its first season. It's a production of MailChimp in partnership with Radiotopia, and it's hosted by Rishikesh Hirway, who has been on Longform before. He's also the host of Song Exploder. And the whole season, the whole premise of the show, is he's talking to partners, some of which uh, will be familiar names to you. PJ Vogt and Alex Goldman of Reply All were on the first season. Samin Nosrat and her collaborator, the illustrator Wendy McNaughton, uh, were on the show. Tegan and Sarah, Jeff Tweedy and Spencer Tweedy, all kinds of incredible partnerships. Anyway, the show just wrapped its first season. It's fantastic. It's short, like the episodes are under 20 minutes, and you'll get a lot out of them. Go check it out. Partners, a MailChimp production Produced with Radiotopia. Now here's our show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. How you doing, Aaron? We did an intro before this, and I brought up that one of my cats is missing, and it got too sad. So I'm just going to say, everyone out there, send a little positive energy into the world for Whistle. Uh, one of my cats has gone missing. It's bumming me out. If you if I sound bummed out on this episode, it's because I'm missing one of my Let's cats. Get that cat back. Come home, whistle. Come home. Um, but a great conversation nonetheless uh, with Isaac Chotner, who uh, currently is at the New Yorker. He does the Q and A's. Uh, you've probably seen uh, one of his interviews go viral because not really that many interviews like really get moved around the internet in this way. And they're usually interviews which turn combative, uh, often in an entertaining way. And I wanted to understand how he gets ready for those interviews, um, how he is so quick with uh, facts to uh, attack the other facts and to uh, really like uh, argue in real time, which is not something I'm particularly good at. Honestly, uh, I'm so nice to people on the show because I don't really want to get in an argument with them <laughs> because I can't think that quickly. Um, and I'm impressed by someone who can. Watching those interviews are kind of like um, watching a car accident or something. <laughs> I should say, like, 
he actually does like more than one a week. And most of his interviews are um, very insightful, uh, respectful. He's had a ton of uh, COVID experts on, uh, but occasionally uh, one of these interviews takes a turn. And um, that's probably the one you've seen if you've seen any of them. Um, I should also say one quick note. This is not a joke at the beginning. Isaac and I were best friends uh, in our childhood, but have barely spoken to each other as adults. So this interview is literally like us catching up after 20 years. <laughs> so glad you guys recorded your reunion. <laughs> we we, stri- we strive for this kind of thing. Get some of that preteen argument energy in there. He probably would have had a better idea of what I'd been up to, and I would have had a better idea of what he'd been up to if we both had been running uh, uh, email newsletters for the last 20 years. Uh, stake your turf right now with a MailChimp newsletter, a distribution channel that you can control completely the way that we control the distribution channel of this podcast. Thank you to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Isaac Chotner. Hello, Isaac Chotner. Uh, hello, how are you? Uh, we just, I think we have to get the elephant in the room out of the way up front. Otherwise, it'll seem like we were um, spinning things here, which is that uh, you and I were, forgive me if I go too far, childhood best friends. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I'm looking forward to this conversation because we haven't actually like hung out and caught up. So uh, I'm using this excuse of a podcast to do so. Yeah, in 25 years, I think. 20 years. Um, how's it been going? You know, I feel fortunate. Uh, my family's healthy at the moment, but obviously it's a tough time. Where are you? I'm at my apartment in uh, Oakland, California, where uh, my family is not in my apartment, but my family's here in Oakland, uh, in the Bay Area. Which is where we both grew up. Um, what was the first step on the path that led you to become a professional interviewer? What, what was your first gig? Gosh, uh, you know, I, I did occasional things, you know, like in the high school newspaper and stuff like that. But basically, it was getting an internship at the Washington Monthly, I guess, in 2005. I'd worked on the John Kerry campaign for president. I did advance work. And then I kind of decided I didn't want to go into politics. I would rather do journalism and got an internship at Washington Monthly in the beginning of the second Bush term. What did you learn in your first taste there? I actually feel like I learned a lot there. I had some really great mentors and friends who are friends to this day. And in addition to kind of helping me, I hope, become a better writer and thinker, uh, just they were people who who really wanted to give young people a chance. I, I think I've been lucky at all the different places I've been, especially before I was 30, the number of places that really tried to give young people a chance to report and to write and to you know, kind of do things on their own. And, uh, you know, I mean, there can be downsides of that. You get in over your head or something, but basically gave me and I think other people who work there a tremendous amount of confidence and leeway to pursue things that were important. And the Washington Monthly, which is a publication I still have a lot of fondness for, really kind of inspired in me, at least, I think, a desire to kind of understand how government works and um, why that mattered to people's lives. It was interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you said that you came out of the um, failed John Kerry presidential campaign. Most of the people I've interviewed on this show who are business reporters are not people who had a uh, failed company. They aren't people who thought they were going to be sort of a, an insider in something and then decided to write about it. How does that orient your your worldview as a writer? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that politics... I actually felt that the experience of understanding politics was not really furthered by the campaign. Um, I felt like I understood politics much better once I got to Washington and started reading about politics more than I had. Working on the campaign was a really interesting lesson about America and meeting different kinds of people than I'd you know met growing up in California often and seeing different parts of the country, which sociologically was fascinating. But in terms of understanding what makes politics work, I actually found working on a campaign pretty misleading in a lot of ways. What was misleading about it? I mean, you know, you just, you have your event you're doing that you're setting up. That's what advanced teams do. Or you have your block that you're walking and talking to people. And you just have this very kind of often, I think, blinkered perspective of what you experience in the day or what the people you get a drink with after work experienced. And I just felt like, you know, compared to reading poll numbers and uh, understanding macro trends and what's going on in an election, I always felt like the former was much less helpful, at least for any sort of prognostication, not that I'm a great prognosticator, excuse me, anyway. But I always felt that it was a very misleading picture, whereas once you started looking at politics on a more macro level, that always appealed to me more in terms of understanding how politics works. When did you realize that the interview format was going to be a good way to do what you were doing? You know, I didn't start doing interviews until um, seven or eight years after I'd started in journalism. I was at the New Republic at this point, and a couple of my editors there had the idea for me to start doing some interviews. And um, I'd always liked the interview form as a way of communicating information. I just, there's something even about the visual. I love the kind of bolded uh, letters and then the non bolded letters. Just when you're scrolling a page, especially online, I've always liked that and reading them in print too. And so then I just started doing them and really enjoyed doing them. And I guess then started doing them regularly in around 2012, I want to say. I would say you're known for um, some fairly contentious interviews. Um, And it's interesting because actually I read a lot of your interviews before this interview. And those interviews are actually like a slim minority of all of the interviews you've done. But um, what was your first experience with an interview where you kind of started getting into it with the person you were talking to? You know, I'm not sure if I remember a first. I mean, I went to interview uh, VS Naipaul. I think this was probably fall of 2012 at his flat in London. This was when I was at the New Republic. And spent a good chunk of the day with him and it was very awkward. He was not a very nice person. Uh, fascinating, but not very nice. And had this kind of bizarre interaction with him and his wife, who is also an interesting person. And he was sort of one of my literary heroes. So I'd been very anxious going in, in a way that I guess I probably haven't in any other interview I've done, just because I, I was sort of obsessed with him as a writer. And I remember typing up the interview in London uh, when it was done, and my editors at the New Republic just sort of made the decision, which I think was right, and which is something I've always liked about interviews, some interviews, was just to kind of leave in the awkwardness. Um, You know, some people say, you know, oh, how edited are your interviews? Well, some of them are just not edited at all, and that's why they kind of read awkwardly, is that we just kind of left in the awkward pauses and left in when I would say something and he would respond negatively to it. So that was definitely an awkward experience for me, and also I think a lesson that you can capture somewhat of the conversation sometimes by leaving in the things that are contentious or awkward. Do those kinds of moments have a different impact when you're in person in the room with someone, say within their own living space uh, versus on the phone or in a situation where like in now. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's much, much harder to have a contentious interview in person. 
there's no comparison. And it's actually one of the reasons that I like doing phone interviews um, for certain things, not for someone like Nightball who you want to, you know, with someone like Nightball, you want to go and you want to get a sense of his house and you want to do an introduction with some scene and things like that. I mean, for someone like him or other authors I've interviewed, you know, you want it to function more as a magazine profile. But yes, for other people, it's absolutely easier to do it over the phone. When did you get into a general practice of interviewing people on a, a weekly or a regular basis? Oh, that wasn't until, I guess, 2016 um, or 15, end of 2015. I'd left New Republic and I did an interview for Slate and just one a single interview. I just sort of sent it to them freelance, I think. And uh, then my editor there kind of talked about um, bringing me on to do interviews full time. And those were coming out as a podcast with Slate. They were after a while, and then some of them were, some of them weren't. But a lot of them became a podcast, I think, the next year. Do you feel like there's a big gulf in representing those interviews like as audio versus text? That's a good question. Representing, maybe not. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, things do read differently on the page. I mean, one thing that will have happened sometimes, or me and my editors will discuss, is that you know, someone will say something clearly in jest, but unless you put a, you know, laughs and brackets after it, it'll seem like they're serious and annoyed. So things like that, if you just kind of put text down the way people say it with no guideposts, it's going to come across differently than if you're listening to the conversation in a lot of cases. But I always enjoyed doing text more. I'm not exactly sure why. I just, you know, the sort of going into a podcast studio and, you know, I always felt like I got kind of the more unvarnished side of someone just calling them on the phone and mm. kind of just because of the casualness of it. Whereas, mm. you know, they go into a podcast studio, it's like they feel more prepared in some way. But I, I like just sort of, sometimes if you can do an interview where you just get someone's phone number and you call them up and you say, hey, want to talk? And they say, oh, I have 20 minutes. Sure. You know, I, I feel like that conversation is often, um, can often be kind of wonderful. So you just, you would just cold call someone with no pre-booked interview and be like, hey, you want to chat now? Well, it depends. I mean, I don't do that that often, but occasionally you do that. And, um, you know, occasionally people are surrounded by these PR apparatus. Is that apparatus? Is that what I say? I'm, I'll accept it. Apparatuses? Yeah. Well, I, one of the two, certainly, or I, I would hope. But, um, and so if you want to avoid that because you know those people will say no to you, then if you can get someone's phone number and call them, sometimes that's helpful because they'll want to talk. You know, oftentimes they'll say no, you know, contact my PR person or whatever. But, and I don't mean this in any sort of a gotcha way that like, oh, you surprise them. It's like sometimes people are just in a mood to talk. And, mm. you know, if you call them a day later, they're in a different mood and then they forget about it or they forget to return your email. So, and if they say no, they say no. So yeah, sometimes I do like that. I do think that that's a quality that I can pick up in your most recent run of uh, New Yorker Q&As. There does seem to be a feeling, and I don't know what gives this feeling of like this person, not like that they were blindsided, but that they like, it's off the beaten track of their circuit a lot of the time. And I, and I was curious, like how you both book those interviews and how you catch them at that moment. Some of the interviews you've gotten, I'm I'm sort of surprised that the person is doing interviews at that juncture. Like you had one recently with um, Representative Peter King, the congressman. And I was like, why is Peter King doing this interview right now? You know, I mean, I think people like to talk. They like to be asked questions generally. And, you know, I think that certainly in kind of the space that I'm doing most interviews, which is 
politics or politics adjacent, people have strong views and like to express them. I think that maybe just as simple as that. I don't know. How do you prepare for interviews, particularly interviews that you think might be contentious? And a lot, a lot of time in the middle of the interview, you will um, respond to something that they deny with a very precise fact where I, I'm always curious what you've got sitting in front of you as you do these interviews. No, I mean, I just like to read up on the people I'm talking to. Um, you know, sometimes you're talking to people who have reputations or instances in the public record where they've been dishonest. Someone like, you know, Rudy Giuliani. So I interviewed him last year, I guess. And, you know, I'd heard some things he'd said in in media appearances that were not true. And so, you know, you have to sort of have something written down that you're going to say if they say something. You know, the other dirty secret that you can do is sometimes, well, this is another secret to phone interviews. If someone is saying something that you can just Google it and see if it's true while they're talking, you know, if you doubt that it's true. But basically, I just, to prepare for all interviews, I just read. Read up on the person, read up on the subject, and um, oftentimes talk to people. I'm doing an interview later today, which I guess I shouldn't say because I don't know when it's going to be up, but you know, who I don't know that much about the subject. So I called up someone I know who writes about the subject and talked to him about what he thought about it. So it's similar to working on a story. You call people and you talk to them and you read about it. And, you know, it's not that different in a lot of ways. Do you like pre-visualize at all? Like when you're talking to Rudy Giuliani, are you thinking, okay, well, when he was confronted with this on this previous time, then he went this direction. So I can sort of assume he's going to zag that way. And then that's what I'm going to ask him there. Yeah, I guess occasionally, uh, if I've read interviews that the subject is done. I mean, I, I like to think of interviews, though, kind of structurally, sort of going back to the thing about thinking of them as kind of functioning as a profile, which some of them I hope do. Um, thinking about, you know, an, a beginning and an end and sort of how the conversation will arc or not arc um, is something I try to do before so it's not too disjointed. I don't know um, if I succeed. And obviously, I've been fortunate enough to have just wonderful editors who are much better at uh, structuring things than I am. I mean, one thing that I will say that I think has made things more complicated in the last few years, and it's definitely an issue that we talk about at The New Yorker, is, you know, I think there's a lot of concern now about allowing things that are not true into the public sphere in whatever context they're in. And so if I'm talking to someone that I'm afraid is going to say things that are not true, we oftentimes have debates at the magazine or, you know, me and my editor talking about it about what should be allowed to appear that's not true without a correction. And sometimes if a subject says things that are factually untrue or generally we have a, you know, a bracketed thing that says, you know, someone says, you know, only 500 people have died from coronavirus. And, you know, if more people have died, we would put in a bracket, the number of people that have actually died. So yeah. I guess what I would say about that is that I do think about correcting people at the time because I, you know, if I have some sense of things they may say that are not true, you know, you don't want an interview to have too many brackets with too many corrections. You want it to feel more like a conversation. So I definitely think about that aspect of it. And, and you know, go back and forth about how much people should be allowed to say things that are not entirely, entirely accurate. But at the same time, you know, I'm interviewing them for their opinion. So should they be able to say something? I mean, it's, it's complicated. So in terms of uh, interviews you're doing now for The New Yorker, like, how do you decide, like, who is a good subject for an interview? You have a very, very wide range of interview subjects. I mean, I, it's kind of dizzying, actually, to me. Like, I just talked to journalists on this show, and I feel like I can barely keep up with journalism. 
how do you decide what the right path for this Q&A series is? I mean, I should say first off, you know, I don't come up with a lot of the ideas my great editor Carla does, and um, also just the higher up editors at the magazine also um, send me ideas and so on. So, and other writers there. So I'm super grateful for that. I, I could not come up with two or three ideas a week that I think would make good interviews. But, you know, I guess I try to divide it in my head between people that I'm talking to because I want to learn about them and people that I'm talking to because I want to know about the subject that they, he or she is an expert in. So, you know, if there's a coup in Turkey, I'm essentially talking to, you know, a professor of Turkish history in Ankara, you know, I don't care so much about the personal life of this person I'm talking to, nor does the reader. What they care about is the information this person has about Turkey, which is certainly greater than what I have about Turkey. So those types of interviews are different than an interview where you're going to talk to V.S. Naipaul or Jonathan Franzen or Zadie Smith. So we try to do interviews in such a way that we have some of each of those. Do you find that that idea of structure is different in the like sort of um, I'm getting an expert to give me information versus the other kind? Totally. Do you have like a default structure for each? You know, I, certainly not a default structure for the kind of profile type ones. Um, it sort of comes and goes depending on who you're talking to. But yeah, I mean, if you're talking to the kind of more explainer type interview about some subject, then I think the structure matters less. You usually, the structure kind of ends up being, you know, if it's a coup in Turkey, you know, it's sort of, well, how did the coup start? What ha- you know, so it, the structure often provides itself um, the way it would in a newspaper article or something. I notice in some of the more <laughs> contentious interview uh, batch that you'll often find common ground in the first part of the interview and then diverge. Like they often start off kind of on, we're on the same foot page. And then at a certain point, they'll uh, veer away and you can kind of see the person you're interviewing change. Like that, that's actually one of the things I really enjoy about your interviewing is that I almost can see the character of the person you're interviewing come out through that turn. And I'm curious if that's uh, something you think of consciously or how do you regard sort of the first third when you're working on uh, on the ramp up of an interview structure? I, I think sometimes, you know, the first third, you start with questions just to kind of get their perspective on paper. And if I have disagreements with that perspective, I, you know, I sort of let them say what they want to say and then sort of bring up my disagreements later. So the reader has some sense of where they're coming from. And, you know, hopefully the disagreements can be revealing in some way of what they're saying or different debates that are going on in the culture at large. I guess what I would say is, you know, this wasn't conscious particularly. At a certain point, I guess sometimes with interviewing people on the fringes of the Trump administration, it became not that interesting to me to argue with them over basic factual matters. And so I thought that it could be more revealing of, you know, what type of work they were doing or or just sort of how the Trump administration and people around it go about its business to kind of hear from them in a kind of direct way without without sort of frontally challenging them about facts all the time and just sort of try and understand where they're coming from, that doing that could be as revealing. And so I think it was just sort of um, sometimes it was just exhaustion with, uh, you know, arguing over whatever. Did Obama really put into 
the child separation place and, you know, did Trump really say that both sides are to blame at Charlottesville? I mean, at some point having these kinds of debates just became sort of tiresome. And so I wanted to sort of find another way to talk to some of these people. What did you find that you got out of them once you stopped pushing on the factual issues? Well, I, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say I stopped pushing on the factual issues because, you know, I, I don't want to say that incorrect facts. Yeah. Change, change tact, change. Oh, I, you know, bit. I just thought that I, you know, I just thought you get sometimes a more revealing um, picture of who the person is and how they think, which um, is often what I'm trying to do with these interviews. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I interviewed this guy, um, Victor Davis Hanson, who um, is this author and very respected classicist. And he'd written this book about Trump as a Greek hero, essentially. And I just sort of thought when I went into that interview that it would be ridiculous for me to say, well, Mr. Hanson, Donald Trump is not a Greek hero. You know, what, what are you, crazy? Like, he's not like a hero in the Iliad or something, um, even though that idea is sort of ridiculous to me. And so I just thought by sort of talking to him and sort of drawing out what he had to say that that would sort of be a more revealing picture of Trump and the people around him. And um, so that, I guess, is what I what I was saying. On the other hand, when people say things that are, you know, blatantly false, then I think probably you should try and correct them or, you know, find some way of making clear to the reader that something is, is not true. When you edit with your editor, what are the biggest conflicts about putting together one of these interviews from the transcript? Oh, I, you know, we don't have a ton of conflicts. I mean, you know, uh, she has final say, so I don't, there's only so much, uh, there's only so much arguing that goes on. If we have a dispute, then, you know, she has, she has final cut, I guess would be the film term. And, I think I speak for a lot of writers when I say that nine out of 10 times that your editor wants to cut something and you're upset about when you look back on it two or three weeks later, it's almost always the right decision. Um, so she does a great job. Um, I mean, the editing process in terms of, you know, it's not, we're not moving some chunk of one answer to some place in another answer or, you know, the chronology of the interview is what you see. And, you know, in that sense, they're not edited that much. I mean, the things that we do edit and, you know, we talk about are one, as I said, factual inaccuracies and how to deal with them. Two, you know, there will be asides or jokes or tangents and which sometimes can make an interview really fun and can sometimes kind of derail it. And so kind of trying to figure that out. Um, sometimes I'll make a joke and I'll think it's funny and she'll say that's not funny. And so, you know, something like that. I find the jokes almost never go over as text. Like we've done transcripts of a few of these and I've just been like, no, no, that was funny. Like it may not sound like this is text, but that was a good joke. Right, right. I uh, thank you for pitching my argument here. I, I hope she <laughs> listens to this and realizes that the jokes she cuts are fun, are actually funny that just don't read that way. I think I was just interested because like I've talked to so many journalists on the show about, okay, this is how on the record and off the record works. And it's just kind of this you know, accepted standard within an industry. And, you know, New Yorker has its own fact-checking ways and the New York Times has its own fact-checking ways. But honestly, like, if you were to ask me, is it okay to rearrange two questions in the transcript of an interview? I I don't, like, I don't know what policy is on that. Yeah, I, look, I think the standards about this were really not clear uh, when I got into the industry. And it was strange. I mean, the Paris Review did interviews, Playboy did interviews, several places did interviews, but a lot of places never really did Q&As that often. And I mean, the Times Magazine has had a Q&A for a long time. It's obviously the one that David Marchese does really incredibly now is 
very different than the back page one they used to have or the front of the book one they used to have. But there just weren't a lot of places that did Q&As. And so, you know, I agree with you that the standards for that and were not something that I sort of taught coming up in journalism the way you were taught other things. Jay Kang, who's been on this show, I remember did a, a video piece for Vice with uh, Jordan Peterson. I remember that. The cut of the piece was under five minutes long, and Jordan Peterson's fans like lost their minds and were like, "This is edited! Like this is not the full thing." And I was like, "Of course! What do you think? Like he, uh, you know, flew to uh, Canada and did a five-minute interview, you know?" But it struck me that I, I think people don't necessarily know how the sausage is made. And and when it comes to something like the print transcript of an interview, I don't even always know how the sausage is made. Like, I, I don't know what uh, the established ruling uh, on even like giving half of an answer, right? Just stopping an answer mid paragraph. Right. I mean, I do think, you know, we always say edited for length and clarity. But I mean, I think that also comes up in a news story where you're giving a quote, and it's like, well, Presumably, the reporter called up this person and got more than a quote. And so why did they choose that quote? Why isn't the full paragraph there? I mean, I think the issues, a lot of the issues are the same. But yeah, no, it's people definitely have concerns when I call them and say, you know, this is going to be a Q&A and Q&A format about how it will be. A lot of people ask to see it before it goes up. Some people have more recently asking to tape it themselves, which, you know, is fine if they want to do that. Um, someone did that last month, I guess. And the people who've done that, I think, have felt more kind of um, safe about it, that they would have a copy of it and, the, you know, some record of it. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a field where, you know, we didn't, I wasn't taught the rules of this going in. It only st- was something I started thinking about after I started doing them. Yeah. The idea of people taping their own is interesting. It's, um, it almost like suggests this future where, Every time you see a quote, you'll be able to like drill into it and go into the like complete raw, unedited audio. It suggests a future where everyone is kind of at war with each other and is keeping their own receipts of everything that happened. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel less or more optimistic about that just because, you know, the people who have taped interviews with me have you know, have not wanted to release the tape and didn't feel like they were misquoted, uh, at least as far as I know. One person who didn't tape the interview complained that he was misquoted, but I think that's the only time in eight years that that's happened. So I hope we don't get to a place where everyone's just releasing their own versions of tapes. Although I suppose if people are really taken out of context by the media then um, or lied about, then uh, all the best that they have their own tapes. I wanted to actually talk to you. You said that you brought in experts. And I'm curious... Like what you do when you reach these realms where the very idea of expertise is contentious in itself. I was just reading the Times Magazine profile of the French doctor who um, was pushing the uh, malaria drug research. And it seems like there are people who are experts by some measure who other people are saying what this guy is saying is dangerous, right? We've never had so many experts saying that other experts have no idea what they're talking about, I guess would be one way to describe that. Yeah. And I guess the the thing that makes coronavirus um, more kind of layered as a story is that in addition to kind of the crisis of like, oh, there's a Facebook article that's or an article that goes viral on Facebook that has incorrect information about A, B, or C about coronavirus or vaccines or something. In addition, you have the experts, I think, 
the good experts uh, acknowledging that they actually don't know a lot. And that's really hard. I, um, I did an interview about uh, mask use probably a month ago. And uh, it was super interesting to to talk to the person I interviewed. And this was acknowledged by him in the interview. He was not saying that this was not the case. But it's very clear that there just isn't as much science, or at least there wasn't at the time, about things like masks and what they do and how to clean them and so on, as we would like. And, you know, I think that the best experts in terms of coronavirus, again, experts is maybe a loaded word, the best people who are talking about it intelligently are acknowledging the number of things that we don't know along with the number of things that we do. And so, you know, with that mask thing, it was sort of trying to get across that masks are almost surely helpful, but we don't have in every possible way ironclad evidence the way we might like. But, you know, this is why that people should be wearing masks. And so I think that's what one of the things that makes this story really complicated. And I think anyone who's been reading about coronavirus knows that, you know, you pick up the story and you hear like, well, Russia doesn't have any cases. And then two weeks later, Russia has cases. And you'd already read three pieces about different reasons why Russia may not have cases. And so, you know, it's really hard. And I think we're just correcting our previous um, opinions pretty frequently. And I think even the so-called experts or the quote unquote experts are doing it. I want to read you one of your tweets and discuss it. Is that okay? Sure. You tweeted, Sometimes I think about the fact that human history has arrived at a place where Ryan Russello is able to share his opinions on how to respond to coronavirus with hundreds of thousands of people. Now, I look back in your own writing history, and I know that you reviewed Bill Simmons' book of basketball. So my guess is that you are also a Bill Simmons podcast listener, and that's where you heard this? I, I am a Bill Simmons podcast listener, and uh, that is where I heard that. As am I. So Ryan Russello is a sports host. I generally enjoy his uh, material, um, but uh, either way, he's a, uh, a former drive time radio host. And I was thinking about what you were saying in the context of, you know, there is something jarring about that. But then again, here are me and you, and we're opining about what people should do uh, about the coronavirus. And I want, I'm curious, like what you think about sort of journalists having a, a take, I guess, in this situation and how you see your role as, say, different than Ryan Russillo's. Wow. I was not expecting that question. That is a, that is a good one. Um, it, it's kind of an unfair one because clearly that tweet is um, supposed to have a laughs at the end of it. And I'm flattening the context as if you're like um, uh, trying to besmirch Ryan Russillo, but it's a real issue. I should be honest about that tweet, which is that I actually don't really, I mean, I think anyone should get to talk about whatever they want. They should just be informed and smart about it. And uh, obviously, we generally try to do that. And sometimes we all come up short. So I guess my honest answer to that would be, that was a silly way to phrase the tweet if we're going to take it literally. Ryan Russillo should be allowed to say whatever he wants and uh, is in fact um, allowed to say basically whatever he wants. I just didn't like his coronavirus comments. And so I expressed it through that way in a way that was uh, slightly mean, I suppose. But you're you're correct in the sense that uh, he has a right to say whatever he wants. And um, I mean, I don't think people should be actively putting misinformation and so on in the public sphere. And obviously, that's a problem. I'm not not saying that, you know, it would be different, I think, if um, you and I were saying, you know, vaccines cause autism or something like that. I don't want to put that in the same category. Uh, Rusilla was not saying anything in the category of like, get this guy off the air, take away his podcast. I just didn't like the way he was talking about coronavirus and the fact that I had to listen to it on a sports podcast, which I otherwise enjoy, was uh, was annoying to me. Stick to sports, Ryan Rusilla. Well, 
I think the the part where it gets interesting to me, I keep sort of harping on this idea of experts or not experts. What I'm really getting at is that there's no real like divide between uh, having a high traffic personal podcast or um, you know working for the New Yorker right now. You're you're both reaching hundreds of thousands of people, and that itself is kind of a emblematic of the breakdown of any idea of expertise within media. So that's why I was interested in the Ryan Russello thing, I guess. I mean, it's true that there are more voices out there. There are more mediums, you know, Twitter, podcasting. There's not just, you know, your local newspaper and um, the nightly news. Uh, so obviously there, there's sort of more people out there. But in terms of like what expertise is, I mean, certainly our trust in expertise in institutions has declined. But I'm not sure that like the average opinion is actually less or more uninformed, I should say, than it ever was. I don't necessarily think it is either, but I think, like, I think we all want to be like um, uh, fact warriors and people who only like believe in the truth. But like, I'll confess, like, I, I'm like a, um, a zigzag seesaw about this stuff. I, I maintain uh, two Twitter accounts because I used to do a podcast about cryptocurrencies, and I'll log into the cryptocurrency. <laughs> podcast Twitter account, which is following a bunch of people from that world, it does sway me emotionally. And I take those, what those people are saying with me. And I take what people are saying on the sports podcast with me. I guess I think my own thoughts are this, this weird alchemy of all of those sources. And I think that part is new. I don't think that it's not so much that I think, Oh God, people are more misinformed. It's much more like that. There's a like a mosaic that makes up how they see truth. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, um, and I would not put sports podcasts or Ryan Russillo or anything anywhere remotely near this category. I think one of the things that's interesting for me, or I should say, has not been interesting for me about the last four years, five years, is that I used to watch Fox News obsessively, and I used to listen to talk radio obsessively. Um, I mean, I could tell you the whole talk radio Bay Area schedule. I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Michael Savage and Mark Levin and all of them. And I used to just absolutely love listening to it. And I used to watch the entire Fox primetime lineup. I've spent more time watching Bill O'Reilly than I would care to admit. And I just used to find it intellectually fascinating until I would say 2014, 2015. And now it's just completely uninteresting to me. And one of the things that I miss is the feeling that people who thought differently about me were sincere in some way in this political context. And there are still lots of conservative writers who are really smart, but the dominant takeover of the media and giant chunks of the media by Trump-friendly people has made things a lot less interesting to me because Fox just now feels like propaganda in a way it didn't before. And I don't want to say that it was good before because there were many things wrong with it, but uh, it did feel a sincere representation of certain ideas that I may not agree with, but are you know important to learn about. And now it just feels like, well, if Trump's going to be pro doing something one day, then it will be. And then the next day it'll flip. And the same with talk radio. And that that's just sort of boring to me. And so I do, maybe I just need to do a better job of reading more diverse viewpoints as I guess we all do. But it saddens me that uh, I don't get to have that same experience to the same extent I once did. So for you, what's exciting going forward? Like, where do you see going with yourself as a writer? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to think of anything now just because coronavirus <laughs> is, um, you know, 
it's sort of hard to get away from Corona, but I, you know, that's fine. It feels important and it touches on everything else. You know, I, I think in terms of what I would like to do as a writer, um, I miss writing criticism a lot, only do it several times a year now. And uh, so I'd like to do more of that. And, you know, I'd like to do more uh, literary interviews or interviews with authors that I really like, fiction authors, because those to me are the most fun interviews. Isaac, this has been excellent. Let's, uh, let's not wait uh, 25 more years to do it again. Thank you, Aaron. This was, uh, it was great to talk to you. And that was the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, thanks to her. Our intern, Marina Clementi. My amazing co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. We are brought to you by the good people at MailChimp and Pit Writers. Check them out. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.